Welcome to Meanwhile in the Future. This is our 23rd episode, and it's actually the very last episode in the first season of the show. I know you probably had no idea that there even was a first season in the show, but there was, and this is the end of it. We're going to take a little break before season two starts up again, but I have so many ideas for the show coming up. I promise it will be worth the wait. We're going to talk about water wars, malware invasions, colony collapse. It's going to be awesome. Anyway, back to the standard spiel. Meanwhile in the Future is a podcast about the future. Every week we travel to a specific future to see what's going on. Then we teleport back to now to talk to experts about what that future might really be like. Ready? Great. This week we're going to the year 2029. wanted a convertible? Well, now's your chance to try before you buy. Come on down to California's Volks Porsche and get in the car today. Anyone with a P2P score of 9.5 or higher can take one for a spin this very afternoon. It will be tough to bring it back, I guarantee it, but we trust you will. Zula. License plate detected. Would you like to leave a driver review? So in this future, everything you do is subject to a rating, and that rating is doled out by a combination of machines and other people. Other drivers can rate and review your road etiquette. Your coworkers can review your work and personality. Your teammates can review your performance on the soccer field. Your partners can review your performance in whatever way they decide to. Recently, an app called People got a whole lot of attention for trying to be the Yelp for humans. But People is just one in a really long line of apps that try to apply consumer reviews to humans. The app Lulu lets women leave reviews for men they've dated. The app Sketch Factor invited people to leave reviews for neighborhoods. And on some level, apps like Airbnb, Rate My Professor, Uber, and ZocDoc are all places where people can review other people. But there was something about the app People that made people really angry. The founders of People gave an interview to the Washington Post, and once that story went live, they were inundated with really intense criticism. One founder said she even got death threats. People really don't like this idea. So what makes People different from, say, Airbnb, where you rate your tenants? So all of it comes back to the idea of a transaction. This might be one of the things that's a little bit distasteful or might be at the heart of the distastefulness of, of rating others. 
That's Jeff Hancock. And I'm a professor of communication at Stanford University, and I study the behavior and psychological aspects associated with social media. When I stay at a hotel, I have engaged in a transaction, I've paid them some money, and I can rate them with an overall set of stars, but I might even go crazy and say, well, the service was great, the rooms were small, um, but the location was great. So I might even have three ratings on them, right? Like here's a multi-dimensional rating, but it's really about a transaction. If I date somebody or become friends with somebody and then I rate them, it's like there's some transaction has occurred, like I dated you and therefore we engaged in some transaction and I'm going to rate how good you were as on your end of that transaction. So there's this notion of transactionist that's really ugly when it gets put into people's relationships. Now, this whole idea of rating other humans is something that we all kind of do implicitly. You have closer friends than others. You judge people in a split second when you see them on the street or at a bar. But turning those thoughts into some kind of official rating system makes us feel really gross. So, for instance, if you were to invite me over to dinner and um, I brought over a $20 bottle of wine, you would be, oh, thank you so much, it's very nice, and we'd, maybe we would drink it, maybe we wouldn't. But it was like that I brought this nice little thing. If I brought over $20 in cash and I gave you like four or $5 bills and said, thank you, I'm really, you know, really like you. glad you had me over, you wouldn't even know what to say or do. You would be astonished, right? And it's, it's because I am treating this social interaction as a transaction, and using the money makes it very clear. And not only is it kind of gross, it's also kind of hard. How do you boil down all of the things you know about a person into a star rating? You know, Beyonce is a five out of five and everybody else is some level below that. It's just, um, it's hard to imagine that ultimately you're gonna be considered a fiver or a four. There are a bunch of science fiction stories about this kind of future, where reputation is something that's extremely valuable. And futurists actually have a name for this idea. It's called the reputation economy, and it's already happening. So I get rated all the time as a professor. Um, they're typically anonymous, and I get rated on, I don't know, three or four dimensions. And um, even that feels weird, but at least it's along the, like, was he a good teacher? Was he clear? Was he helpful outside of class? Was he prepared? Like, you know, those are reasonable things, and I think other people would like to know that about me. And it's a rating, and, you know, I think everybody feels pretty good about it. Um, if, if you just look at the trajectories of all of the sites that are about us by other people, or other people have information on us, so LinkedIn, um, Rate My Professor, you know, all of those types of things, the Uber drivers, it kind of points to a future where being rated is, is going to be much more common. In a way, it's already started, for example, in the field of employment. So when we have LinkedIn profiles that tell us, um, that tell the world, you know, where we worked and how quickly we have progressed through the ranks and where we went to school, these are digital resumes that allow computers to compare us algorithmically to others uh, with whom we graduated school or with whom we finished our first job at the same time, in the same place. Who has done better? Who has progressed more? That's Michael Furtick, the founder of Reputation.com, a service that helps people manage their online reputations. He's also the author of a book called The Reputation Economy. Not only are we going to have a reputation score, not only is it unavoidable, but we'll have reputation scores that are, that are specific and material to different parts of our lives. 
Right now, all of these ratings are separated. They're sectioned off into specific roles. But the number of things that we can rate someone at will increase. Now, what kind of babysitter is this person? What kind of neurosurgeon is this person? What kind of kisser is this person, maybe? I don't know. They tend to work in very narrow applications, and then they, then they broaden out. The future we traveled to at the beginning of this episode is 14 years away. But here's what Furtick thinks will happen in five. Most jobs will come to you instead of you applying to them. Five years from now, employers will be searching massive databases for people who their algorithm thinks will be a good fit for their best jobs. And this will apply to every white-collar job and many blue-collar jobs, except for the very, very, very most senior white-collar jobs. It'll take a few more years for them. Uh, In areas like uh, driving, such as there still be Uber drivers and so forth, uh, you will have a much more reliable way of understanding someone's safety record In the case of the sharing economy in which you may rent an apartment or something, you will get benefits and emoluments of of lower deposit rates and free dry cleaning if you're a good tenant and you won't if you're not. The role of health insurance, your health insurance rates will be heavily informed. Your driver insurance rates, car insurance rates will be heavily informed. Your renter's insurance rates will be heavily informed by your social graph and social profile and how you live your life. So in 15 or 20 years, all of those reputation systems might be combined, and they might totally dictate your life, what jobs you get, what insurance you're offered, who you date, where you live, all based on a compilation of scores, reviews, and what Furtick calls digital exhaust, all the stuff you're already leaving behind as you scoot around the internet. In the book Super Sad True Love Story, this future is not a utopia. In fact, in most science fiction that involves any kind of reputation system like this, it is quickly subverted and used to control people. Where I started thinking about it, actually, I just kept thinking about, you know, high school, right? I mean, and girls getting reputations, right? Back in the day, it was like the last thing you wanted to ever do is have, quote unquote, a reputation as as a, you know, whatever, uh, as easy or whatever. And everybody in high school gets a reputation of some kind. That's Alison Hearn, a professor of media studies at Western University in Canada. So I think if you think about it in high school terms, it actually reveals a lot about the problem with the reputation economy or the problems, I should say. In some cases, people feel grossed out by the idea of rating other people. The app People is a good example of that. But there are plenty of cases where you could imagine folks readily reviewing each other in ways that aren't that positive. Take driving, for example. If you had a method of rating other drivers around you, would you take it? If someone cut you off, would you review them? You probably would. Everyone thinks they're a better driver than everyone else, even though that's impossible. And there's lots of research to show that people do things in cars that they would never do in another setting. Road rage is a very real thing. So do you want to be known for your driving habits? Do you want that one time you cut in front of someone, and I know it was just that one time, to stay forever on your reputation profile? Those kinds of temporary moments of not being your best self, you know, feeling like those could be recorded and, and, and live on in infamy, I think makes everybody can, can get how, how creepy that is. The driving example gets at another problem that a lot of people see with these kinds of reputation-driven systems. 
they're more likely to log bad behavior than good behavior. You know, I mean, I've seen it on um, right, my professor. I've seen it on the doctor sites, too, is that people don't do rating, go and rate on a service like that when everything's just fine. They go when they have an axe to grind. But even if people aren't being malicious, and people certainly will be malicious, but even putting that aside, there's a very real problem of codifying the kind of implicit and explicit biases that people have. Then there'll be interesting new indicia of employability. For example, you might work at a company that is very hard charging Monday through Friday, but then really takes the weekends off, or is a very social company, or is a company that's populated by people who are passionate about social causes, or it might be a company that's working seven days a week. Your cultural match for the company, which by the way is fair game under the law to assess, your cultural match, your cultural fit. Cultural match. Another way people say that is fit. Do you fit with the company? Often the idea of fit or culture match in hiring is used to not hire people who don't look like the rest of the company. To put that more bluntly, companies use those words to not hire diverse candidates, to not hire a person who is disabled or transgender or black because they don't quite fit. If companies are plugging specific cultural parameters into an algorithm to pull up matches for possible candidates, those candidates are all going to look really similar. And the people who don't have the right keywords attached to their profile are out of luck. So if you run a company where you want everyone to be a fitness fanatic, then that's a certain kind of uh, preference. It's also a certain kind of bias because it's going to be harder to find a disabled person who's a fitness fanatic as a matter of first imagination. There are no doubt many people who are disabled who are fitness fanatics, but that may not appear in the person's data exhaust in the same way it would appear for someone who is very abled or very able, right? Make sense? You know, you won't, that person may not show up on the same running apps or the same cycling apps. They may have their, a, a different way of exercising. If financial success, personal success, housing, food options, all of that is tied into this reputation system, the people who have the understanding and the money to make that reputation system work for them will succeed. And the people who don't? won't. And those people are sometimes our most valuable humans. I would speculate that that what would happen would be that there would be a, a, a sort of huge press to conformity so that difference and uniqueness and people who are thinking outside the box or people who might be slightly grading but really interesting in some other ways are all it would be it would serve it, it would be disciplinary. In other words, it would press everyone to sort of conform in order to avoid uh, the, the sort of perils of having a bad reputation. All of the great discoveries, all of the great innovations, all of the, the really fascinating things we've done as humans have come from people or groups of people who were, you know, bucking trends and making trouble and making people uncomfortable. And that's, you know, always what I tell my students. It's, it's not about trying to do the best you can in the world that is. It's about challenging the things that you see in the world that are that, that you want to see changed and improved. And that takes courage and it often pisses people off and it makes people uncomfortable and, you know, there's risks associated with it. But, you know, we, we, the risk of not doing any of that is, is even higher. For 
more about the impending reputation economy, head to gizmodo.com, where we'll post links to more information. Meanwhile, In the Future is a podcast from Gizmodo. It's produced by me, Rose Evliff. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Broke for Free. Special thanks this week to Darren Orff and Alyssa Walker. Since this is the last episode of the first season, I have one little request for you. If you like this show and you want to tell us, send an email with your thoughts to overthinkingit at gizmodo.com. It will help make season two possible. You can also say hi to us on Twitter and Facebook, where we're at Meanwhile Future. That's all for this future and for this season. Come back soon for a new one.